Well, let's look now at Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Let me begin by making a statement that I hope you already understand and would affirm. And here it is. Diversity should not mean division. Diversity should not mean division. So what do I mean by that? I mean that differences between people and various groups of people should not mean that they cannot be united in love and in purpose and in faith. Think about heaven. When we are in heaven, we will not all be clones. We won't all look the same. All of our differences won't be taken away. When John gets a glimpse of heaven in Revelation 7, he says that he saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So John recognizes that these people are different from one another because he recognizes that they are representing various nations, various tribes, various peoples, various languages. John sees the diversity of the people, and yet there they are crying out with one loud voice. They are diverse, but they are one. They're different from one another, but they are united together. And God is glorified in their unity and in their diversity. In recent Sunday evenings, we have been seeing that there are rebellious, sinful worldviews permeating our culture that go in an opposite direction. According to those worldviews, diversity means division. Diversity means animosity between groups. Men are oppressors of women. It isn't that some men have abused some women. It's men are oppressors of women. And all men are lumped into that group. Whether they've personally abused women or not, just by being male They are part of the system of patriarchy that has oppressed women for generations. Whites are oppressors of blacks. Maybe you're a white person and you haven't personally oppressed a black person, but you are part of that group. And by being part of that group, you are participating in a system of black oppression. And the end of all this is that groups are set against groups and diversity becomes more than diversity. It becomes division, becomes hostility, 
becomes animosity. Every group is to see itself as either an oppressor or a victim. And the only way to make things right is this state-controlled redistribution of power and wealth. And it is a dangerous and an ungodly and an unbiblical worldview. But the gospel is the cure to this worldview. Because the gospel teaches us that though we are diverse as human beings, there is more that unites us than divides us. We are more the same than we are different. In fact, we're the same in everything that really matters. We are all created in the image of God. And we are all sinners against our Creator. We are all under God's wrath and deserving of judgment. And we may all be saved and be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And for those who are Christians, there is an even greater unity. For Christians, Paul says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Through the gospel, what unites us is greater than that which divides us. Our differences only make our unity more beautiful. Our unity is not uniformity. The church of Christ is made up of all kinds of people with all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of giftedness, all kinds of personalities. And the church of Christ is truly one body, one in Christ, one in faith, one mission. So the gospel is the antidote to sinful divisions. Well, as we've seen in the early church, one of the greatest dividing lines was that of Jew and Gentile. Jews despised Gentiles as unclean pagans. Gentiles despised Jews, especially because the Jews had been continuous, continually disrupting Roman peace over and over again. And they seemed to keep really weird rituals and practices. Uh, for many of these people, they had grown up with a hatred of the other group. And now Paul was writing to this church in Rome. And this church in Rome is both Jew and Gentile. It was probably a majority Gentile church by this time. But there was a significant Jewish membership in the church in Rome. And these Jews and Gentiles were to worship together. And to serve together. To pray together. They were not to go create a Jewish church over here and a Gentile church over there. That is not the message we get from the book of Romans. Instead, Paul says in verse 7, they are to welcome one another. They are to open up their lives and their homes, their affections, their emotions. They are to open up their lives to one another. By the way, this is why I don't think well of affinity-based churches. 
I don't think the Bible supports cowboy churches, biker churches, churches that cater to a specific niche group. Churches are not to be niche groups. Churches are to be filled with various kinds of people with different interests and different backgrounds, different personalities. And we are to be eager to welcome and receive and love anyone and everyone that Christ would bring into our church. We're to make time for them. We're to make space in our lives for them, room in our hearts for them. So we've seen that. That's what we've been talking about for months now in Romans 14 and 15. But one area where Jews might have thought that they had room to boast over their Gentile brothers and sisters was this. Jesus is a Jew. I mean, come on. If any group has reason to boast, surely it's the Jews. Because they are the people of the Son of God. God chose to become a man. And of all the peoples in the world, God chose to become a Jew. Not a Greek. Not a Roman. Not an Ethiopian or a Persian. Not a Gaul or one of the Germanian peoples. No. God became a man and He chose to become a Jewish man. Surely... That means the Jews are superior in some way. Surely this is one area where the Jews can boast over their Gentile brothers and sisters. In our study of Luke, we heard Simeon looking over the baby Jesus. And he said that that baby would be glory for the people of Israel. So here's the glory of the Jews. Jesus came from them as one of them. And so here's an issue that could really be divisive. So how does Paul address this? And why did Jesus come as a Jew? Look with me at verses 7 through 12. 7 through 12. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For... I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So we have the command in verse 7 that we've already looked at, to welcome one another. And then in verse 8, Paul addresses the issue of why Jesus came as a servant to the Jews, why Jesus came as a Jew, Paul knew that wrongly understood this could be a hindrance to true unity 
and a welcoming spirit in this church. And so he addresses the issue head on. Jesus became a servant to the circumcised. Jesus lived among the Jews. He walked and talked among Jews. He performed his miracles among the Jews. He taught and instructed the Jews. He saw himself as one sent to the people of Israel. The word servant that Paul uses here is literally the word deacon. Jesus deaconed the people of Israel. Of course, you'll remember that even though Jesus saw himself as sent to the Jews, he was clear in his teaching that his apostles were to go to the world. Jesus gave the great commission after his resurrection, telling them to go make disciples of all the nations. He told them to wait in Jerusalem for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And then he said that they would be his witnesses, yes, in Jerusalem and in Judea, but also Samaria and also to the uttermost parts of the earth. And even in his ministry to the Jews, we sometimes find Jesus performing miracles and caring for the souls of non-Jews. We think of the Samaritan woman in John 4. We think of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, how Christ commended her faith, healed her demon-possessed daughter. We think of Jesus healing the servant of the Roman centurion. But by and large, Jesus spent his life on earth ministering to his fellow Jews. He was very different from Paul, who traveled to all sorts of Gentile cities, spreading the gospel. We don't ever see Jesus getting on a boat and crossing the Mediterranean Sea. We don't see Jesus trying to get to Rome so he can spread his message to the heart of the empire. We see Jesus spending most of his time in little old Galilee, ministering to common Jews. Why? Well, Paul's summary statement is crisp and clear. It is to show God's truthfulness. Jesus came to show that the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and the God of Joseph is the true God, a God to be trusted, a God who keeps his promises. And throughout the Old Testament, the God who spoke to the patriarchs and through the prophets about the one who was to come described aspects of what his ministry would be like and who this Messiah would be. He was to come from Bethlehem, a little Jewish town, Micah 5 verse 2. He would be raised in Galilee in northern Israel, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. And in particular... Paul wants us to notice that Jesus came as a Jew to fulfill the promises made to the patriarchs. He said, in order to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. God told Abraham that through his offspring, the nations would be blessed. Jesus was to come as a son of Abraham, as a son of David, in a Jewish genealogical line, and as the Jewish Messiah sent by the God of the Jews, God told Abraham, the nations would be blessed. Jesus came as a Jew to the Jews for the sake of everyone. Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah and fulfilled all the Jewish prophecies that it might be seen that he has been appointed as the one who is the Savior of the world. 
Isaiah 49 verse 6 says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved in Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Paul says Jesus came as a Jew in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Jesus had to come as a Jew to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all the Old Testament law. To be the fulfillment of every gospel shadow given to Israel in the Old Testament. Listen carefully to this. It was the Jewish context. It was the Jewish scriptures. It was the Jewish covenant with God that would give us the categories and the language to understand what was going on at the cross. What was going on at the resurrection and and what the offices of Christ are. Without the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, Jesus as a Jew, we would be at such a loss in knowing how to make sense of the atonement. Or what it means that Christ is our priest. Or even what it means to be saved. The Old Testament gives us the grammar for New Testament realities. By Jesus coming as a Jew and fulfilling the Jewish promises, we now can better know Him and understand Him. And because he comes as the son of God in fulfillment to God's promises to the patriarchs, we know we can trust him. He's the real thing. He's not a false Messiah. He's the true Messiah, worthy of our faith and allegiance. So yes, Jewish Christians, Paul says, it's a wonderful thing that Jesus came as a Jew. It is the glory of Jews that God worked through them to bring about the Savior of the world. But make no mistake, this was always about the salvation of the world. It was always about Jesus saving people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Jewish Christian in Rome, you are not superior to your Gentile brother. Jesus came as a Jew for your Gentile brother. Jesus came as much for him as he did for you. That seems to be the message here. Jesus for the nations. Jesus for all, Jew and Gentile. And then, Paul just unloads Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage showing that one great aim of God's great purpose and plan for history was that the Gentiles would know Him and that the Gentiles would rejoice in Him and that the Gentiles would praise Him. And what's interesting is that Paul really could have quoted so many more. When I was putting this message together, I was looking through Old Testament passages and the prophets about the coming Messiah. And I found more there about his coming for the Gentiles than I found about him coming as a Jew to the Jews. It isn't that the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah just mention in passing that he was coming to the Gentiles. It's an overwhelming theme in the prophets. It comes up again and again in purpose statements. Here's what the Messiah will do. Here is why the Messiah will come. That the nations will know God. So look at the verses that Paul chose to use as his proof. What's interesting here is that the four passages he quotes are from all over the Old Testament. 
One is from the law, one is from the histories, one is from the Psalms, and one is from the prophets. It's as if Paul was saying the entire Old Testament is united in its teaching on this matter. Exhibit A, verse 9. That is a quote from 2 Samuel 22, verse 50. It's David singing after he has been delivered from the hands of Saul. And what does he say? He says, he will praise God among the Gentiles and sing to his name. In other words, the heart of David, and by the way, also the heart of David's greater son, Jesus, was a heart that said, I'm going to praise my God, not just among my fellow Jews. I'm going to praise my God among the Gentiles. And notice there that it is a Jew that's doing the praising. But it's a Jew praising God among the Gentiles. So the praise starts with a Jew. Now look at exhibit B, verse 10. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And here, rather than just praising God among the Gentiles, the Gentiles themselves are called to take part. The Gentiles are urged to join in the praise. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So the Jews are praising God, but now Gentiles, join in. Rejoice with his people. You see the progression? Exhibit C, verse 11. This is a quote from Psalm 117, verse 1. And what's clear here is that this is a call for all the Gentiles, all the nations to join in. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol Him. So first time, it was a Jew praising God among the Gentiles. Second time, Gentiles, you join in. Third time, all the nations. Jew, Gentile, everybody. Then there's exhibit D, verse 12. And this is the clincher. This is the passage that shows that it would be through the Jewish Messiah that this expansion to the world would happen. It would be through the son of Abraham, through the son of David, that is the root of Jesse. It would be through the root of Jesse that Gentiles would be saved and praise God. So how will Africans and Asians and Australians and Europeans and Americans come to praise the God of Israel? Little Israel. How's the whole world going to praise the God of little Israel? Well, they're going to hope in this Jewish Messiah. And therefore, they will rejoice and praise the God of Abraham right along with Abraham's ethnological children. This quote is from Isaiah 11 verse 10. By the way, it's a passage that Jews well knew and understood to be about the Messiah. It says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. So what do you note about that prophecy? Did you notice that it not only says the Gentiles will hope in him, It says the Jewish Messiah actually came to rule the Gentiles. In other words, the promised king of the Jews, the one who will sit on the throne of David, won't just be a king for the Jews. He's going to be king of all. He's going to be lord of all. His kingdom, worldwide kingdom, made up of people from all the nations. 
And how are Jews and Gentiles made one? Jews and Gentiles are brought together as brothers and sisters and unity and harmony. Here is the glue that brings them together. They hope in Christ and become common citizens in the same kingdom. Whether you're a Jewish believer or a Gentile believer, when you hope on Christ, He is your King. He is ruling over one kingdom. Not a Jewish kingdom and a Gentile kingdom. It's one kingdom. And we are citizens of the same kingdom under one king. So Mount Hermon, do we see this about ourselves? Yes, we can put ourselves in various groups. Male, female, white, black, rich, poor, right-handed, left-handed, UNC fan, state fan, Duke fan. Here is what makes us one, even with all of our diversity. We're members of the same kingdom, ruled by the same king, hoping in him, saved by him. We're one in Christ. What sin destroys, what sin divides, Christ unites. Therefore, Whatever differences we may have with one another, welcome one another. Welcome one another. Open your heart and your home and your life to one another. Make space in each other's lives for one another. Love one another. Now that's the passage. I want to take the time I have left and try to address two questions about this teaching. Two questions. Number one. Does this mean that our differences don't matter? Are we supposed to just ignore differences in the church of Christ? And in particular, are we supposed to ignore the fact that different groups of people have a much tougher road to hoe in this life than other groups? So for example, imagine the Christian slaves and the Christian slave owners who were part of this same church in Rome. And they're to worship together and pray together and serve together. And they're to welcome one another into each other's lives. Are they really supposed to ignore the fact that some of these people are owned by others of these people? Or don't these differences matter? few considerations. Number one, when it comes to the leadership and offices of the church, there are no qualifications based on ethnicity, social status, or education. Offices of the church are limited to men because male headship is part of God's natural design for the world, his design for the family and the church. Offices of the church require these men to be men of faith and godliness. But Paul never in 1 Timothy 3 or in Titus 1 limits those offices by ethnicity, social status, levels of education, your income. Slaves could very well be elders and deacons in their church with authority in their church over their slave owners. You could have a church where some of the 
poorest men in the church happen to be the leaders, caring for the souls of far wealthier people in the church. The point is this. These things were not to have a place in the consideration when it came to leadership. Faith, giftedness, godliness, those were the considerations for leadership. Second, when it comes to the commands of God's people, sorry, when it comes to the commands of God for his people, these differences don't matter. In other words, all of us are called to obey Christ. No one gets a pass because of some particular identity group that they belong to. All Christians are called to count others more significant than themselves. All Christians are called to deny themselves to serve others. If you happen to be a CEO or even a mayor, or a governor, or even president that would not change that call. A president who is a Christian would have as much obligation in his local church to help carry out the trash or to help set up tables as any other member of that church. And he has as much obligation to look for opportunities to stoop down and serve others in that church. So in the slave-slave owners situation in Rome, the slave owners had as much of an obligation to be part of the service and self-denying part of church life as the slaves. And for the slaves, their lower social status did not exempt them from caring for, praying for, and serving the needs of those in the church who were slave owners. These identities, slaves, slave masters, these were not what mattered in the church of Christ. What mattered was, this is my brother. This is my sister. We We are citizens of one kingdom, serving one Lord. And I am to love and to care and serve my brother and sister as best I can. The brotherhood and sisterhood that Christians have in Christ is more important and to have, is to have a greater driving force in our lives than our differences. Now this doesn't change the fact that the more wealth or power or resources that God has entrusted to you in this life, the more you are responsible to steward those wisely. So yes, a wealthy slave owner in the church in Rome would probably have been in a position where they could do more for the poor in the church than the slave. Wealthy slave owners might often be in a position where they could use their connections and resources and power to do more to help people in need in the church, to whom much is given, much is required. But here is the key principle. Christians are not to relate to each other based on their identity groups. We're to, base, to, to relate to each other based on our identity in Christ. Based on our brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. Based on our unity in Christ. So if there's a sick person in the church and you're able to provide them a meal... You should do so regardless of their identity group, your identity group, their social status, your social status. You should treat each brother and sister in Christ the way you would treat any other brother or sister in Christ. Regardless of race, social status, ethnic background, 
or anything else. Last question. Are there some implications of this for our current situation here in the United States and the divisions that are plaguing this country? And I think the answer is yes, but I want to be clear. The kingdom of America is temporal, and it is very different from the kingdom of Christ. In the church, we have a greater basis for unity because we have the same spirit within us. All Christians have been born again and are new creations in Christ. We don't have that kind of basis for unity when it comes to the United States. But we can learn lessons from the kingdom of God that help us think about our situation today in America. And one is this. Americans will never be at peace with one another and will not heal their divisions as long as they see themselves more in light of their differences than they do in light of their common unity as citizens of the same country. What once united Americans was a love for country, a regard for their common citizenship, a common desire to see their country prosper. As long as differences shape us more than that common unity, division will continue, hostility will continue, and this republic will be in danger of breaking up. Mount Hermon, we do not need to fear the kingdom of Christ ever breaking up. Jesus is her Lord. He will ensure that his kingdom endures and prevails Long after the United States is ancient history, all of God's people will be dwelling together in a new heavens and a new earth in unity and in harmony. Differences will remain. And those differences will reflect the glory of God. But even with those differences, we will have welcomed each other into our hearts and lives as Christ has welcomed us. And since that's what heaven will be, Each local church and our local church should be a little foretaste and picture of that right now. We should be an outpost of heaven. We should be a place where in Christ there is great unity amongst diversity. So let us welcome one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we're thankful.